Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Gabby Petito's been gone for over a year now. Is this case over? No, this case is far from over. My name is Mary Fulgeniti, and I'm a former federal prosecutor and defense attorney. There are still a lot of questions for Gabby's parents, the primary one being, would Gabby Petito still be alive today if the case had been handled differently? lovely listeners and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now I just want to start the episode with my usual trigger warning. This episode and of course the series may well be triggering but also angry making. Listener discretion is advised. Gabby's case is absolutely ongoing as you heard in the clip. And yes, that is the key question that I'm shedding light on and answering. As I keep saying, you can draw your own conclusion. And in this episode, I move closer to the truth. Before I dive in, it's poignant to highlight that these episodes are dropping across Domestic Violence Awareness Month. October was first declared National Domestic Violence Awareness Month in 1989. Since then, October has been a time to acknowledge domestic violence survivors and be the voice for the victims. That's something I've pledged to do across my career. But I also feel we should move beyond this and aim to create change to hold abusers to account as well as professionals when things go wrong. After all, victims have been telling their stories for many, many years. And what's really changed across that time? In my opinion, it's only when there are real-life consequences and accountability for both abusers and professionals that women will be better protected and matter. In our culture, the lives of women and girls seem not to be worth so much, particularly to law enforcement. And we have to change this. And that's why I'm committed to long-form, detailed analysis and forensic deconstruction of cases like Gabby's and sharing my analysis with you all on Crime Analyst so that you see the signs, you understand the red flags, you can hold others to account and you can ask the right questions. And as I keep saying, once you see it, you cannot unsee it. And we shouldn't just accept a review and its findings without question. Remember the crime analyst sign-off at the end of every episode? That's for purpose. Okay, let's jump back into Gabby's case. The last episode ended on a cliffhanger. I highlighted Utah law about determining who the predominant aggressor was. In the law, four requirements must be considered. One, any previous complaints of domestic violence. Two, the relative severity of injuries inflicted on each person. Three, the likelihood of future injury to each of the parties, and four, whether one of the parties acted in self-defence. Now, Captain Ratcliffe had considered this in his report and written in red next to it, unfounded. In other words, he found no violation. 
Now, as I said, this floored me because it's really the crux of the case and there should be much more focus on this in the review, in my opinion. What's curious to me is that Captain Ratcliffe omitted an incredibly important detail that turns his conclusion on its head. And that's that the domestic abuse was ongoing and it was Gabby who acted in self-defence. She was defending herself and her property. Brian disclosed that he assaulted Gabby first. He said he pushed her away. Brian said he had the keys and he was trying to stop Gabby from getting into the van. Here's a reminder of what he said, and I also want you to hear the setup as a reminder too, because I talk about this again later in the episode. So the setup is Officer Robbins has locked Gabby in his car. He then walks up to the white van. Brian was talking with Officer Pratt, and as soon as he sees Officer Robbins, he cuts Officer Pratt off and wants to know about Officer Robbins's conversation with, in inverted commas, his fiance, and what Gabby had told him. Take a listen to this. What's that? Yeah, I just spoke to her. So, you want to do me a favor? Let's go ahead and get you to step out of the vehicle. Alrighty. You're not in any trouble right now. So, tell me what's going on. It, the shoes gets worked up sometimes, and I try and really distance myself from her, so like I, I lock the car and I walk away from her. What, what happened this morning is that she's trying to start up like her own little website blog and everything, so I give her time. And I, we, we really had a nice morning, if any, and if anything, but um, she just got worked up because we were trying to get going and get our day going because we want to go um, like garden point or something. Okay. You, you want to tell me about those scratches on your face? She had a cell phone in her hand. That's why I was pushing her away. Because I, she, she wanted me. I locked the keys so I could walk away. I, I said, let's just take a breather and let's not, you know, go anywhere. Let's just calm down for a minute. She was getting her worked up. And then she had her phone and was trying to get the keys to so I got away. I was just trying to. I know I shouldn't push, but I was just trying to push her away to go. Let's let's just take a minute, step back and breathe. And we see she got me with her phone. Can I see your hand? Okay, so you heard it for yourselves. Brian admits to assaulting Gabby first. He pushed her. He said this at 5 minutes and 36 seconds into the police stop. That's significant. A push or a shove or a punch are assaults under Utah's law. So why was this overlooked by Officer Robbins and Officer Pratt? Also, why has this important detail not been referenced by Captain Ratcliffe? In fact, astonishingly, he does specifically make a note about Brian disclosing that he pushed Gabby first, not once, but twice, on pages 54 and 55. However, there is no further commentary about it. It's been overlooked, or ignored. And I'm not sure which it is, but it's a significant point, and a glaring omission, in my opinion. Also, just take a moment to think about Brian and Gabby's physiology. A push or a shove from a man who's as tall and strong as Brian towards Gabby, who is small and petite, is also noteworthy. One singular push or shove with force could have pushed her off her feet or into the side of the van. And she did have a bruise on her arm. We should also think about the context and why Brian's narrative never rung true. I mean, if Brian were really trying to calm things down, if we gave him the benefit of the doubt, 
Then why didn't he just give Gabby her keys and let her in the van? Why didn't Officer Robbins ask him about that? That would have been my follow-up question, along with asking Brian to confirm the van's registered owner. And on that point, I searched through the review report for mention of the van owner, and the fact that there is no mention of it at all is deeply troubling. You see, for me, this effectively was a domestic violence call-out right from the start. The 911 caller reported it as a domestic, and the dispatcher allocated the case as a domestic. What's clear to me is that Brian assaulted Gabby first, and I'd also argue that it was an offence against property. Gabby's property. Brian was preventing Gabby access to her van, and from all the details of the case, it's clear to me that he was the predominant aggressor. Another important point is that Captain Ratcliffe makes no mention of a key manual written by the Utah Attorney General's office titled Domestic Violence 101 Manual for Police and Prosecutors. This is a really important document, and for me, it's another glaring omission of this review. Now, I dug deeper into the manual, and there are numerous pages written about the Utah predominant aggressor law, including about self-defence, which is a key aspect of this case. It reads, Self-defence is justified in threatening or using force to the extent that he or she reasonably believes the force is necessary to defend himself or herself or a third party against others' imminent use of unlawful force, justified in using force only if she or he believes that the force is necessary, and it's not justified if initially provoked with intent to inflict bodily harm upon assailant. So in this context, it's clear to me that Brian was controlling Gabby and her movements. He locked her out of her van. He took her phone and her keys to the van. She was trying to get her phone and her keys and get in the van, but he threatened to leave her there on her own. He told her to shut up. He hung her backpack out of the back of the van. So not only did he threaten to leave her there, he was acting on it. Simply put, Gabby didn't provoke Brian. She was not trying to hurt him or injure him. She was just trying to desperately get her phone and her keys and get in the van, and she used reasonable force to get into her van. Also, there's a marked physical difference between the two of them and an obvious power imbalance. Brian grabbed Gabby around the face and mouth, and his hands would have covered her nose and mouth. He dug his fingernails in. He assaulted her. It was another way that he tried to control her. Now, this is recognised by all experts as an assault. She had a bruise on her arm and cuts on her face. Bruising around her mouth and jaw would only show up days later. This was not acknowledged, documented or photographed. Brian's narrative that he gave to the police officers was simply not true. He said that he told Gabby to calm down and to take a walk, but that's not what happened and it's not what the witnesses reported. But Brian was never challenged and it seems even now with this review that that has been lost. He lied and lied again. The Domestic Violence 101 manual states to consider who in the relationship poses the most danger, who is at risk of future harm, who is the most significant aggressor, did one person use unreasonable force in response to another's action, and it outlines under the heading Law of Probability Non-Statutory check for the following, presence or lack of fear in either party, presence of fear, 
not likely to be the predominant aggressor. Evidence of fear includes crying, hysterical, irrational, nervous, disorientated and confused, apologetic, which describes Gabby tick, tick, tick. And therefore, according to their own domestic violence manual, Gabby was not likely to be the predominant aggressor. And then it lists lack of fear or angry, calm, threatening or controlling behaviour is most likely the predominant aggressor. Brian, tick, tick, tick. Let's talk makeup for a moment. What's your daily makeup routine? Are you an out of the door with a messy bun, a mascara vibe? Or are you coiffed to the max? Or maybe you're somewhere in between like me. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty free. Made with clean skin loving ingredients, high performance and trademark formulas and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics bigger than beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were false eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new sheer strength lip plumping peptide gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller looking, luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. It's also ultra hydrating and there are 10 shades to choose from which enhance your natural lips, six shines and four shimmers. Support and empower women and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crime analyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 20% off your first order. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy. And health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths, and Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormills, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormills.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off.
There's a sentence included in the manual which reads, Many victims don't realise they're being abused, which is absolutely true. In fact, roughly 51% of women don't know they're being coercively controlled and or abused. And after this, it clearly states, don't be manipulated by the perpetrator, including the let's talk sports approach or let's share our military experience approach or the you know how women are, she's crazy routine. And the last point reads, the more alike cop and suspect are, the harder it is for the cop to believe the suspect did what he did. Tick, tick, tick. And yes, I concur. When we see like for like, we don't and can't see it. And of course, men will be more like, well, men. And the bro bonding can happen quickly, as we saw for ourselves with our own eyes in the police stop. And let's not forget the fist bumping, the laughing, the smirking, all of that that was going on that's not commented on at all in this review. So the self-defence aspect, along with Brian's injuries being so minor, and Captain Ratcliffe, who also did document that Brian's injuries were minor, and the fact the injuries were most likely from Gabby trying to get him off her and trying to get into her van, these are all important factors with the Utah predominant aggressor law. Nuance behaviour and context are everything, and it's detailed in their own manual. Now, these four requirements should have been considered and clearly documented by Officer Pratt and Robbins in the police report, but they weren't. Yet Captain Ratcliffe neglects to mention that the officers did not document their evaluation of any of these four required considerations, and yes, they are required considerations of the law. Now, is it a genuine oversight, as he didn't comprehend what had happened, and he hasn't been trained using the manual? Well, it's hard to say, but the manual isn't even mentioned, and the conclusion of the review is problematic, as it sounds like Captain Ratcliffe doesn't understand this law in Utah, given what he says about some of his own cases, and I'll come back to that at the end. Captain Ratcliffe did highlight that neither Gabby nor Brian were asked about the history, which is also a significant failing as it's a required consideration. And that's another really important point. Now, it states in the DV 101 manual that the question, what will the other party say precipitated this event, will reveal the predominant aggressor. And I agree. It's exactly why Brian immediately cut off Officer Pratt when Officer Robbins was walking up to the van after speaking with Gabby. Remember how I noted it in an earlier episode, how Brian immediately turned away from Officer Pratt when he arrived at the scene and was talking to him through the window of the van? He saw Officer Robbins approach, and before he'd even drawn level with the passenger side door of the van, Brian said, You spoke with my fiancé? Then he quickly corrected himself and switched out the possessive ownership pronoun, my fiancé, and he said, you spoke with Gabrielle? And as I said before, the subtext of this is, what did she tell you? He wanted to know, because he was the abuser. And then when Officer Robbins gave him nothing, he went straight to blaming Gabby, devaluing her, and noticeably he called her crazy when Officer Robbins questioned his behaviour. Now, for me, this is all classic pert behaviour that I've seen in many cases, and yet the nuances of this were missed at the police stop, and unfortunately, they'd been missed in this review. What's also interesting to me is that Captain Ratcliffe does acknowledge that primary aggressor law and predominant aggressor laws are not the same thing, 
and that a predominant aggressor is not automatically the person who starts the domestic abuse, and they are also not automatically the person who has the least severe or least amount of injury. Officer Pratt used the term primary aggressor the whole way throughout the police stop. He said it was because Gabby said she hit Brian first, and that's what he got hung up on. But Captain Ratcliffe makes no mention of Brian starting the argument, taking Gabby's cell phone, policing Gabby's movements, and rather than calming her down as he claimed to the police, he was goading her, he was provoking her, he threatened to leave her, he blocked her from getting in the van, her place of safety and comfort. He even put her backpack outside the van to signal he was serious about carrying out his threat of taking the van and leaving her there on her own. Brian's actions and words were not congruent. He clearly was controlling and manipulative. He lied to police and he got away with it. In my opinion, he was enabled. Yet Captain Ratcliffe concludes this section of the report with this. Additionally, the statements made, specifically by the two involved individuals and one of the two witnesses, would lead officers to believe that Brian was acting in self-defence. And I totally disagree with that conclusion, based on the facts and the evidence, and all the reasons that I've mentioned. It's also worth underlying that Christopher said that Brian took Gabby's phone, Brian was controlling Gabby's movements and preventing her from getting in the van, that Brian hung the backpack out on the back of the van and threatened to leave Gabby there, and that it was Gabby that said to Brian, why are you so mean? It was not the other way round. Gabby had a right to retrieve her property. Brian started it all. Gabby was the one reacting and acting in self-defence, not Brian. Why is it so hard for these officers to join this narrative up? This was a frightening situation for Gabby. It's clear she was upset. Brian wasn't. He was laughing and joking. He actually wanted to go on a hike, and he even laughed when he was told he was the victim. Now, perhaps religion played a role here too. A woman should be subservient and the man in control. And I'll say more about that later on. Gabby had an injury to her face and a bruise on her arm. As I've said before, it's common for victims of strangulation to defend themselves. Gabby tried to describe what happened, but Officer Pratt kept interrupting her. Now, I can't help but feel that if she were able to better explain what happened without the constant interruption, she may have been able to say more, including about the history of violence and abuse. Silencing a victim and constantly interrupting them is the same as telling the abuser to carry on, in my opinion. Interestingly, as part of this review, Officer Pratt and Officer Robbins both state on interview that they thought that the other took the photos. But what's evident to me is that it wasn't seen to be important, as they'd already decided Gabby was the problem. This is further corroborated by the fact that Brian was not asked about any of this. He was never challenged, despite the fact Gabby was the one that was upset, not Brian, and Brian showed a lack of emotion and fear towards Gabby. These should have been red flags to the officers, including the reviewing officer, that something else was at play. When Captain Ratcliffe asked Officer Pratt why there wasn't any follow-up with Brian regarding the statement Gabby made of Brian grabbing her face and causing injury, he said he thought it had been taken care of. Officer Pratt said Officer Robbins had this information and Officer Robbins spent the majority of his time with Brian while Officer Pratt spent the majority of his time with Gabby. 
Officer Pratt said he shouldn't make these assumptions, but he made so many in this case, mostly all of them wrong. Now, on reflection, to me, it's puzzling that Officer Pratt would say that he thought it had been taken care of. What I witnessed on camera with my own eyes was that he didn't acknowledge what Gabby said. In fact, he didn't ask one follow-up question of Gabby. Not one. He just changed the subject. And yes, he's accurate that he did tell the other officers what Gabby told him. But there was no action or tasking following this. He never said, please get a statement from Gabby about this, or please take photographs of her injuries, and ask Brian what he has to say about this, and so on. And so I find this hard to believe. Officer Pratt was a supervising officer, and he should have been directing Officer Robbins to ask Brian and challenge Brian about this. It's not okay for him to just say, well, I thought it was being taken care of and that it was going to be addressed. His job as a supervisor is to check. This, to me, was a significant failing, and I don't like the fact that there appears to be a misdirect on interview here. Also, Officer Pratt talked about the fact that he didn't call the reporting party about what he witnessed because he felt that his observations and the statements were, and I quote, all lining up. That's another huge assumption to make in this context or in any domestic abuse call-out. But in this case, particularly where Gabby is crying and distressed, he should have called regardless if he were truly investigating the case. And this just points to him having made his mind up that Gabby was the problem. Part of an investigation, or a very important part of an investigation, is to have an open mind. And let's not forget that he did tell Gabby that two independent witnesses had said the same thing and that she was the primary aggressor. And that was very damning for Gabby when she heard that. However, that simply wasn't true. Now, I saw her reaction on camera and she just crumbled and seemed deflated and defeated at this point. She became distressed, as you would. Now, about not calling the reporting party, Officer Pratt also said on interview this... So how much time do you spend on a call, you know? You know, I work 10 hours. I gave one-tenth of my day to one couple. And then I have many other calls. The other calls that are going on, a guy laying in traffic, and that's important to him that I come drag him out of traffic. All these calls are important. If I had my way, I'd spend as much time as I needed on every call to make sure every call worked out right. But they want us to, and Officer Pratt snapped his fingers repeatedly, They want us to, and we don't have the staff. I'm not blaming the department, but we don't have the staff. Okay, so I wondered whether time and resource would come into this. What I would say about that is that I've spent many hours across my 26 years in classrooms with police officers where they tell me they don't have the time and they don't have the resources to investigate. Let me be clear. Four officers were at the scene for 75 minutes. That is much more time than any officer in the Metropolitan Police Service would have. And given that there were four of them at the scene, they could have been tasked very clearly. But that didn't happen. And there was no rush. There was no urgency. There was no call for help or assistance. Now, I said this before because I knew that this was coming. And for me, I just don't accept that this was a time and resource issue. Captain Ratcliffe does highlight that a lot of detail was omitted in Officer Pratt's police report. Record-keeping is very important in cases. It's exactly why supervisors play such an important role and mentoring those less experienced is vital. 
Supervisors must ensure reports are written up appropriately and accurately, particularly with domestic abuse and coercive control, as they're rarely one-off crimes or behaviours. Captain Ratcliffe noted similar concerns with Officer Robbins's written police report. Many details were missing from the statements he received, and other details were embellished. For example, in Officer Robbins's report, whilst describing the statement made to him by Brian, Officer Robbins wrote, and I quote, Brian indicated Gabby went into a manic state. Captain Radcliffe says that after watching the body-worn camera multiple times that he was unable to hear that statement. Captain Ratcliffe concluded that Officer Robbins draws that conclusion himself and stated it wasn't Brian that said it. Brian had called her crazy, not manic. Now, of course, I went through the footage many, many times. I too didn't hear Brian say that Gabby went into a manic state. Now, this again highlights to me the impact that Brian's statements had on the impressionable and inexperienced Officer Robbins. Brian said she was crazy. These sorts of comments are made to sow the seed of doubt, put the victim under the microscope, and here we have the officer concluding that Gabby went into a manic state. And that's not all. I want you to hear what else Officer Robbins wrote in the police report. Here are a number of direct quotes. Gabrielle, who was in the passenger seat, was crying uncontrollably. At no point in my investigation did Gabrielle stop crying, breathing heavily, or compose a sentence without needing to wipe away tears, wipe her nose, or rub her knees with her hands. Brian told Officer Robbins, and I quote, Whilst arguing near Main Street, he had attempted to separate from her so they could both calm their emotions. He got into their van and Gabrielle had gone into a manic state. I observed some small scratches to Brian's right arm, And when I asked him about them, he supposed they must have happened when Gabrielle was trying to get his attention about me being behind them with my lights on. This, however, was not consistent with Gabrielle's statement, further suggesting her confused and emotional state. So, according to Officer Robbins, Gabby was crying uncontrollably and was in a manic, confused and emotional state, and that, therefore, what she said could not be trusted. This was simply not true. And Gabby's statements were completely consistent, by the way. It was Brian's that weren't. And of course, this was Brian's desired outcome, that Gabby would be seen as unstable, confused and crazy, and he manipulated the officers into believing him. And it worked. He achieved it. It's exactly how Gabby was written up in the police report. Gabby was pathologised. This is a huge failing, in my opinion. Yet there were no supervisors checking the reports and questioning what was written. Now, Captain Ratcliffe questioned Officer Robbins about this when he interviewed him, and his response is documented on page 67. Captain Ratcliffe asked, In your report, you state Brian got in the van and Gabrielle had gone into a manic state. What is your understanding of what that means, and how do you know she did this? Officer Robbins replied, Manic means they're not in the right state of mind, aren't doing things that people would normally do, like crawl in through the driver's window across their boyfriend. And he said she had been kind of in and out of those states throughout the last few days due to those arguments. The way he described it to me was that was the set of mind she was in when she climbed in the car. 
Captain Ratcliffe pressed further and asked, So as far as stating that she went into a manic state, was that something that Brian actually said, or is that something you concluded? Officer Robbins answered, I haven't sat down and watched my body cam. I was also still on FTO, and not very good at writing reports, so I'm probably guilty of putting speculation in there. Hmm, probably guilty of speculating? I would say you absolutely did speculate and pathologise Gabby. Officer Robbins just couldn't understand why Gabby would act like this. Brian completely played him. To Officer Robbins, it was irrational. She was manic, in inverted commas. But to most women, it was understandable and proportionate and reasonable given the circumstances and her fear. Yet Brian took Gabby's fear and made it his. He said he was scared that Gabby would drive off without him. But there was no evidence that this was the case. Brian was the one with the keys, not allowing her into the van, locking her out, and Gabby had made no such threat. Brian lied time and time again and he wasn't challenged. But see how easy it was for Brian to manipulate these officers. And let's talk about supervision again for a moment. Well, we heard and saw Officer Pratt call a supervisor at the scene. He spoke with Assistant Chief Palmer. Well, I can share with you now that Assistant Chief Palmer was actually at home on paternity leave when Officer Pratt called him. He wasn't even working. How can that be right? When Assistant Chief Palmer was interviewed by Captain Ratcliffe and was asked about the report approval process at the Moab City Police Department, he answered this. Ideally, the field training officer, the FTO, takes a look at their report before it's submitted. They go over it, the report is then submitted and comes to the first-line supervisor, which you know generally is a sergeant. We were in the middle of a promotional process, so it was a little bit different. From there, the initial supervisor, the first-line supervisor, reviews the report. If corrections need to be made, they reject it back to the officer. If no corrections need to be made and they felt that the report was complete, they would then approve it and it goes to our records. They do some reviewing there as well and then obviously, if it's an active case, it would go to whichever attorney it needed to go to. If not, then it's closed or no action was taken, then that's that. Now, just a reminder that Officer Robbins had been with Moab City Police Department for just five months, and he was left up to his own devices when it came to writing up the police report. Dangerous stuff, in my opinion. Now, this is exactly why I look to the supervisors in cases like this. And in my opinion, and I've said this many times, they should do their damn job. They should supervise. I also want to circle back to the pathologization of women and say more about what happens when you're coercively controlled and gaslit. Well, firstly, across my career, I've seen that trauma is often pathologised when it's a woman. And it's not an exaggeration to say that I've seen this time and time again in my cases. But distress and trauma are normal reactions to coercive control and abusers. Your emotional state becomes dysregulated. In fact, a recent study... Profiles of emotion regulation and post-traumatic stress severity among female victims of intimate partner violence by Marina Munoz-Rivas, Anna Bellot, Ignacio Montorio, Rosa Ronzon-Torado and Natalia Redondo found that post-traumatic stress, regardless of the type of traumatic incident that generates it, is characterised by a general dysregulation of emotions. 
So if this is the case, and I can tell you through all my casework that it is, when there's domestic abuse and or coercive control, you should expect this from a victim. It's actually a clear sign that someone has been victimised. Also, if the trauma stems from intimate partner violence, we know that the post-traumatic stress is likely to last longer and be more severe due to there being a trust bond and a sense of betrayal and the fact that it's ongoing. We shouldn't just look at the symptoms and not try and understand the cause, whatever profession you're in or whoever you are. And with domestic abuse and coercive control, if you're constantly walking on eggshells, if you're fearful if you're constantly having to preempt someone else's response and change yours to fit theirs, you're not in your own body or mind or emotions. Your life is seen through the lens of someone else, the abuser. You become secondary to them and all else. You are not able to process your feelings and thoughts and emotions and that's incredibly unhealthy and will lead to emotional dysregulation. You will prioritise the abuser's needs their wants, their desires and their emotions and you don't pay attention to your own needs. You become codependent on them or feel you need them for everything. Eventually, if it continues, you will slowly with every drip, drip, drip or psychological undoing be rubbed out. Your agency, your autonomy and your self-esteem. When this continues for a long time, it can lead to greater difficulty accepting your emotions and emotional avoidance coping mechanism behaviours may be relied upon, including dissociation, substance misuse and or self-harm to reduce negative effect. You may become hypervigilant and highly reactive to those around you because you've learned that people are not safe and you must defend yourself. You may self-harm and or think about suicide Suicides happen when someone feels so hopeless and helpless, so dysregulated, and you see no way out. You may feel like life isn't worth living, like you're the source of all the problems. You've been gaslit, manipulated and reduced. You've been taken hostage. You've become a passenger in your own life. And what's more, you won't even know how you got there. And so when police are called... It's important that they understand the power imbalance and coercive control and that they're trauma-informed. And we need to stop with the emotional woman, the confused woman, the hysterical woman, the manic woman, sexist tropes. As I keep saying, if you don't ask the right questions and if you don't get to the cause, it will lead to re-victimisation of the victim and it will also lead to pathologising them. Take a listen to what Gabby's good friend Rose said about Gabby, having watched Gabby on the police body-worn camera footage. It takes a lot for her to get that hysterical. But I'm perfectly calm. I'm calm all the time, and he really stresses me out. And so when I saw the body cam, I knew it was more than just a little argument. She's not going to slap him for no reason. That's important. It happened in this case, and happens in most others, sadly. And it's far wider than the police. Social, family, health and criminal justice systems all back up the abuser when this happens. And when we allow men to say, she's crazy, she's emotional, she's confused, she's manic, and go down this sexist trope route, and when professionals buy into that without properly questioning why a woman is so distressed and so upset, we inadvertently collude with the abuser. 
It has such serious repercussions across every strata of life, including health. Here's an example from one of my lovely listeners. Now, she recently shared her story with me, and she gave me permission to share it with you. This is what she told me. I was abused for 30 years by a boyfriend. Many years later, I was diagnosed as having borderline personality disorder. Thanks to you, Laura, I've now been diagnosed as somebody who's suffering from trauma as a result of the abuse I suffered. So thank you very much, because without listening to you, that diagnosis would not have happened, and everyone would still be wondering why the borderline personality treatment was not working for me. Thank you so, so, so much. I was so happy to hear this. And when I asked her permission to share it with you all, she answered immediately, stating yes, and she wants to help others. Women are simply amazing. So we can identify coercive control and abuse and abusers and help the victims by doing so when we're trained. Okay, so I'm going to end here on a positive because this message really lifted me up. And what I will share with you is that this work really isn't easy. It's dark, it's detailed, it's uncomfortable, it's challenging, it's upsetting and it's angry-making. I'm spending time on Gabby's case because I want to move the needle. I want to create real change to protect future victims. And you can only do that by shining a light on what went on and what went wrong and speaking truth to power. I'm absolutely not here to tell a grisly sensational story about a brutal murder in 45 minutes. There are plenty of other podcasts that do that. And I'm certainly not here to exploit women's trauma or lift up and embolden perpetrators. And I have received some incredible messages about how my episodes and my work are being used in police training and other training, as well as in cases. And I too have delivered two early morning masterclasses just this week. They were 5am starts. Again, I used my analysis of Gabby's case and others, the forensic deconstruction, in my masterclasses. You see, 5am starts tell you that I'm serious about creating change. I walk my talk. So if this has impacted you for the better and you appreciate my forensic deconstruction and work, please drop me a message, or even better, take two minutes to drop a five-star review wherever you listen to me. And across October, you can get a 10% discount off of all Crime Analyst merch using the link in the show notes. So go ahead and treat yourself or someone you care about. Also, share Crime Analyst with someone. You never know. It may just change a life or save a life. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.
So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 